Good morning, everyone. So good to be back uh, in person. Also, good morning to everyone on Zoom. Um, I've been on Zoom for quite a while, so um, being in this place and seeing your faces again um, is just really, really good. Um, now, we're in our series of Hebrews, uh, continuing it today. Um, and as you've noticed over the past few weeks, Hebrews takes work. It's a heavy book. There's loads of good stuff in it. There's very complex stuff in it as well. Um, so today we're going to be um, working our way through Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So if you have one with you, either physically or on your phone, get it out. Because um, we're going to read through the whole thing. Not in one go. <laughs> we'll take it in sections. But we're going to cover a lot of ground today, hopefully. Um, so as you um, turn to the book of Hebrews, let's pray together before we start. Our Father, who is in heaven, as we take a deep dive in your word today, um, we pray that you will help us not to drown. Help me to speak with clarity and through your Holy Spirit, uh, will you give us understanding of all truth as we seek to learn more so that we can love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we'll actually pick it up a little bit before chapter 7. We'll start at chapter 6, verse 13. I believe these are the verses that Andy closed out with last week. So let's go. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Shalem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Shalem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, 
but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Carrying on. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We'll stop there for now. Okay, take a breath. That was a long bit of scripture. Um, it will be the longest section we will uh, read through today. Um, there's two others. We'll get to them in a moment. And before I continue, I should say um, that if there's anything either from this sermon or from the previous ones um, that you'd like to talk more about, um, please feel free to contact well, Andy, Aaron, uh, me. We won't be able uh, to give you an immediate answer, perhaps, but we can hopefully get you started or direct you to a good book um, to help you further. One resource that I would like to recommend is um, actually this one. It's called Discovering Hebrews, and it's written by Steve Mochier. Steve is a uh, New Testament scholar who has lectured at LST, um, still does that um, occasionally. And this is not a big book. Um, it's not an academic commentary, but it is very insightful um, and very well written too. So I would recommend it. It's part of the Crossway Bible Guides. And um, Lorraine, remind me to send you um, a link of something um, to find it afterwards. So what we have just read is what I will refer to as the oath section. It's why we started in chapter 6, where the author mentions the oath God gave to Abraham. And at the end of our section, the oath is brought up again, but this time in relation to Jesus. And in between, we meet this man named Melchizedek. My um, Hebrew lectures have started again this week. Um, that'll be a challenging module, but I was quite happy when reading this bit that I could follow along with the translation of the author. Um, I recognized two words from my own Hebrew vocab, um, because Melchizedek combines two words. It combines the word melech, which means king, and zadok, which means righteous. 
taken together, it means my king is righteous or king of righteousness. And this Melchizedek is an extraordinary character. This king and priest of the Most High seemingly appears out of nowhere in the Abraham story. The scriptures don't give information about his parents or lineage. Steve actually draws a comparison between him and a character from the Fellowship of the Ring. So, if you like the Lord of the Rings, there's another reason to buy this book. Um, yet Melchizedek plays an important part in the Abraham story. He blesses Abraham and he receives tithes from him. The writer of Hebrews doesn't want his readers to miss out how special this is. To Abraham the patriarch giving tithes to this person and receiving a blessing from this person while he was the man of the promise. A divine promise. A divine promise that God then underscored again with an oath. An extra confirmation. Not because God is not trustworthy, he is. But specifically to convince the heirs of the promise even more that his purpose was unchanging and unchangeable. God did multiply Abraham. From him descended the tribes of Israel, one of which was Levi, um, and the priests came from there. But Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God before they were. And then there's Jesus. We've read that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, he does so in the sense that he has no birth or death day mentioned or genealogy. And this gives a lasting endurance to his priesthood. It doesn't make Melchizedek himself divine. In the same way that the fact that Jesus does have a genealogy mentioned, or a death day for that matter, doesn't make him just another man. What is more important for the author of Hebrews here is that here we have a priest who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek meaning one with a never-ending priesthood. Like Melchizedek, this priest does not come from the place you'd expect. He's not like the ones descended from Levi. He's not descended from Levi himself. He's from the tribe of Judah. But he has become priest in a much more powerful way. He has what none of the Levitical priests have. Two things, actually. An indestructible life and an oath. And so... The author of Hebrews brings up the same verse from the Psalms twice. It's Psalm 100, verse 4. Um, and it says in verse 17 of chapter 7, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Forever. Indestructible life. And secondly, he points out that this priest is priest by an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So from this, we can begin to see how the author of Hebrews kind of weaves together the appearance of Abraham, the appearance of Melchizedek in the Abraham story and the oath of God sworn to Abraham, all to build up to introduce this new magnificent priest, this new magnificent person. So who is he? Seriously, who is he? Exactly. But it's been a while since Hebrews mentions his name. Which means that now that we read it again, it comes at us with full source. Full force, sorry. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant.
So just to recap, God made a promise to Abraham and then reinforced it or guaranteed it even more with an oath. We read of this extraordinary character named Melchizedek, a priest like no other, and then it builds up to another priest rising in his likeness. This one introduces a better hope through which we draw near to God. This will become important later on. And this too is reinforced with an oath. His priesthood is by oath rather than by legal requirement. Remember why God gave his oath to Abraham? It was so that his heirs would be even more convinced of the unchangeable character of his purpose. And now we find that Jesus is a priest unlike any other, which again is secured with an oath. This is so that we can be encouraged that this priest is one to rely on. It's quite clear then from Hebrews up until now that Jesus is unique. That Jesus exceeds all others. He exceeds the angels. We've been through this in the past couple of weeks. So that's who he is. But what does his priesthood entail in practice? And what makes it unique? That's what we will get to in our second section. So open your Bibles again. Hebrews chapter 7. We will continue from verse 23 until chapter 8 verse 6. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It was needed that we have such a high priest. All other high priests needed to offer sacrifices daily, time and time again, also because they themselves were sinful. But Jesus is not like the others. He did not get the priestly office on the usual legal basis. Again, he couldn't have. 
But he can keep the office like no one else could. Because, well, everyone else dies in the end. They can't do it forever, and they can't cleanse anyone completely. But Jesus can. Once more, the author of Hebrews brings up the concept of the oath, now appointing a son who has been made perfect forever. What an immense difference that is with the other priests who had this noble office and did it dutifully, but couldn't do it to the uttermost. It's good to emphasize again that this is not just repeating how Jesus is uniquely qualified for the job. It is about how Jesus conducts the priestly office. At this point in the Bible, we specifically get a picture of Jesus as minister. Look again in chapter 8. Jesus is a minister in the holy place, verse 2, who has obtained a greater ministry than all others, verse 6. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, which is a very exalted position, but the majesty in heaven himself is God. Jesus ministers to him and intercedes for us in a similar function to earlier high priests, but in a much, much excellent way. If you will, the author of Hebrews makes it a down-to-earth remark. Like every other priest, there must be an offer of something, or Jesus isn't enacting a priestly office. But that's a down-to-earth remark concerning a priest who serves in heavenly places. Jesus has an offer, unlike any other. And therefore, he is a priest unlike any other, and is serving in a place where no priest on earth could have served. I think the writer of Hebrews puts it beautifully, even though it's a long phrase, when he says in verse 6 of chapter 8, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. To this covenant, we will now turn, and we will look at what these better promises are. Everyone still good? So let's read on. Hebrews chapter 8, continuing in verse 7 until the end of the chapter. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my, in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. In other translations, I turned my face from them. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
What we just read is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Uh, a prophetic part of scripture, as you probably know, which is why I um, put my declares the Lord voice on for that bit. God in this part of scripture declares the finitude of the old covenant and announces that there will be a new one. And there wouldn't have been a need for a new covenant if the old one had been sufficient. It wasn't. Not because God hadn't established it well, but because the people didn't adhere to it. And so God says there will be a new one, a better one. And you can easily see from the phrases of the prophecy how this covenant will be better than the old one, right? The laws of God would be shared intimately by the hand of God with the people. It would not be put in front of them, not handed to them on stone or written on paper, but put directly in their minds and be written on their hearts. Nor would there be any more need for anyone to be taught about God, because they would know him. Me and everyone here at LSC would be out of jobs, basically. Just like that, everyone from every class, every kind of background or education would know him. And all the people's iniquities would be forgiven and their sins forgotten. So, a few observations to make about this new covenant. Firstly, it does not imply the disappearance of the law. It doesn't. Because rather than the law vanishing, it is now inscribed on the people. If anything, the law is more present than ever with them. If it weren't, that would be the absence of covenant, right? Rather than there being a new one, let alone a better one than before. But secondly, the old covenant would cease to exist. And this is where we need to realize how important or even upsetting this letter may be. You've probably noticed along the way, from this discussion about oath, the unique and excellent priesthood of Jesus, and now the better covenant, there emerges a theme of old and new, inferior and superior. The words weakness and uselessness have been used in chapter 7, I believe. An old covenant has now been declared obsolete. And so the author of Hebrews argues to an audience thoroughly Jewish in their thinking and background that the old priestly order and the old covenant, everything that made up the identity of the people of God, did not do. And he argued this from the very scriptures of the Jews. That serves to make the argument convincing and, as Steve puts it, gentler in the sense than just to smack the people around the head saying, Moses was wrong, the Levites were wrong, the people of Israel have been wrong all along, and this is better. But the argument and conclusion are shocking nonetheless. The old covenant is past due. It has become obsolete. And in verse 13, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away which means it leaves no other option. Jesus is the high priest surpassing all other priests, continuing his office endlessly longer and better than any other priest could, and the old covenant has been and gone. There's no going back to it. 
It's past due. Like I said, it's ready to be binned. So I want to ask us this morning, do we realize that there is no other way to God than following Jesus? Literally, follow him. He has been called the forerunner into the inner place. Do we grasp that we have to put all our confidence on him ministering in the holy places? There is no going back to past ways. There's not even a fork in the road. Those have simply hit a dead end. Two friends of mine are here today. Well, a lot of friends of mine are here today, but my two flatmates are here. Um, Phil and Jean-Luc, they're sitting in the back row. Uh, we rent out a flat together near the campus in Northwood. And um, as coincidence would have it, each of us brought our own different coffee machine to the place. <laughs> I've got a mocha pot, uh, which I got from my dad before I left. Uh, Jean-Luc brought an AeroPress. And Phil has a machine that grinds fresh coffee beans, um, fair trade from Peru. Peruvian bliss, he calls it. And it is good coffee, mind you. But actually, all of it is good. You can talk about how once you've had this kind of coffee, you'll never want another kind. But that's just, that's not true. Um, one day I'll have mocha pot coffee, the other day I'll have AeroPress coffee, um, another day I'll have Costa coffee, and in a few minutes I'm hoping to have a cup of coffee here, and I will enjoy that. Don't think about the covenant as casual as you would think about coffee. We are here because we put our faith in Jesus. He is to us the great high priest. And through his holy ministry, we get to be part of the new covenant. And that's not an option among many. You can't have one covenant on one day and another covenant the next. The people of God couldn't say and cannot say, on second thought, I prefer the old covenant and I want that back. Because, let me say it again, it's been and gone. So let me ask, do we acknowledge the new covenant but still live with another? Have we made a covenant in the past with something else that part of us is still attached to? A covenant isn't just something you like, it's something you devote yourselves to. You, you agree to its terms and, and conditions, um, and you put your faith in its promise to deliver whatever it is. Rest, peace, joy, um, comfort or affirmation. And we can still linger in that even when we've heard about Jesus and begun to believe it. I know I have lived like this and still struggle to stop doing that. Like I have a covenant with the bar, not the bar you would find in the pub where you get drinks, but the bar that I would set for myself up there. 
or allowed to be set for me anyway. I agree to its demands of putting in work and effort and devoting myself to it, performing well, exceeding expectations, and I'm hoping that that will bring me joy and peace and affirmation when I make it. And when I reach that bar, well, I feel okay. If not, I feel like a failure. But I have found that even when I felt at peace and happy with the result, it was only for a moment, because another project would come up, and noticeably or subconsciously, that bar would be raised higher than the first time. And I would keep going. And I would start working and worrying again. So this is the bit where I preach to myself louder than to any of you. Will I come in on a Sunday morning and sing that my hope is in Jesus, my life is secured in His ministry, and I am no longer a slave to fear, right? And then, even that very afternoon, live again like I still am. Like I have a covenant with perfectionism. Friends, there is no hope there. Literally. There is no hope in going back there. We read that Jesus was appointed by an oath as a son to perfection. And that perfection is so far from any perfectionism of mine. And through him, only through him, can I hope to draw near to God. So are you in another covenant still? Is it this bar that I raise higher and higher for myself? Is it the actual bar, perhaps? Do you take the cup of communion on one day and drink the cup of another covenant the next? Can I encourage you? Put Christ first. Let Christ be first as the great high priest seated next to the majesty in heaven and interceding for us forever. Put your faith in him, fully, solely. All other ways are past due. Only he endures forever.